0: Friends, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, you are the God of all time, the God of all space, the God of all being. You are the God who has chosen to come to us in your Son, through your Spirit, to teach us the most important things we need to know. We affirm that truth. We remember that conviction, and we celebrate it as we begin again a season of study, a season of sharing with each other a season of opening our hearts and our minds and our souls to your life-giving and life-renewing truth. Speak to us now in these moments. Speak to us in ways that will encourage us, ways that will strengthen us, ways that will challenge and correct us, ways that will lead us one step further into the kingdom that your Son already has established, and we pray it in His name, amen. Okay, so we are starting on a new theme, if you will, a new series of conversations uh, scripturally uh, that are tied, again, to what we're doing on Sunday mornings here. Not all of you are here on Sunday mornings. That's perfectly fine. Happy to have everybody here whenever you can be here, but as uh, we looked at last fall, uh, we looked at uh, one kind of overarching theme of the unity of the church, the oneness of people that God wants uh, to, to have happen on the world, uh, in the world, and we finished with that. So, we're all unified now, right? The world is one big happy family, uh, and uh, sure. <laughs> Well, we're going to move on now to, uh, to a new theme that's going to take us through our Easter celebration, and this one is going to focus us very specifically and very much in depth on what some people would call the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we're a church, and so we're always talking about Jesus Christ, Uh, but oftentimes we talk about other themes, not just about Jesus. And uh, for the next uh, two and a half months, we will be looking very carefully, actually a little more than two and a half months, we'll be looking very carefully at some of the Scripture's most important titles, some of the church's most... uh, important uh, theological statements, some of the most important names or titles or roles of Jesus Himself. All of this, of course, comes from the basic conviction that Christians look at Jesus first, right? Uh, Lots of people want to talk about God. That's great. We want to talk about God too. Lots of people want to talk about spiritual life or being spiritual, uh, and that's great. We want to talk about that too. But the unique thing that Christians add to the conversation is what God added to the conversation by coming to be with us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, theologically, I begin from the conviction that everything, everything that we say in the life of a church somehow must be filtered through Jesus Himself. Does that make sense to you? And so we're going to focus. We're going to look at Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as a great prophet, Jesus as all of those different names that you've heard Him described before. Does that make sense to you? And so we will be bouncing around a good bit uh, in the Scriptures, but when this is over, you will have uh, a, a very good grounded sense of what uh, classic Christian uh, theology is, orthodox understanding of, of who Jesus Christ actually is and what He was doing in the world, and hopefully also then as well what that means for you. I mean, it's great to have all this theological understanding, but unless it says something to your life today, uh, then, then I don't really care much about all that, that background information. I care about what it's going to do with our lives today. And of course, those things are very, very much connected. So, let's turn to the first uh, chapter of the gospel according to Mark. Many of you have read this before, and we will start to dive in, and you'll see how we're going to go about <coughs> excuse me, see how we're going to go about doing this. So Mark 1, verses one through 11. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, "See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as He was coming up out of the water, He saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on Him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Thus endeth the reading of the Word. (laughs) Let's talk about Mark. It is very widely accepted by scholars and has been for a long, long time that the gospel according to Mark is the first gospel to have been written down. It's the earliest one that we have. Perhaps 10, maybe 20 years after Jesus had physically departed the scene, Mark probably appeared on the scene, possibly written from Rome, probably written by the person named Mark, who's referred to in Acts, who was a traveling associate with Paul and then with Barnabas. Mark is the shortest of the four records of Jesus' life, and Mark as a whole is repeated in some way, shape, or form in Matthew and Luke. It's pretty well understood that Matthew and Luke had maybe an earlier version of Mark, maybe this version of Mark, but they used a lot of the material from the gospel according to Mark. John goes off in a whole different direction. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar to each other. Matthew and Luke have a lot of other information that's unique to them, but John goes in a whole different direction. One of the reasons that we say that Mark is the first is because Mark gives us essentially just the facts. As I read this, I read in sort of a staccato fashion, partly so that we could focus on the meaning, the the rich, rich, rich meaning of every single thing that Mark is saying. Matthew and Luke tend to elaborate a little bit more. John elaborates a whole lot. Mark gives us very, very basic facts of the story of Jesus and does not give a lot of elaboration. And so, in some sense, we have to fill in, if you will. But Mark also helps us focus on the most important things in that way. Does that all make sense to you? Now, we've, of course, just come through the celebration of Christmas, which is reported only in Matthew and Luke. I'm sure that you have realized that. We sometimes use the gospel according to John, the prologue, when John says, in the beginning was the word, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but John really doesn't tell us much about the birth of Jesus. It's Matthew and Luke who tell us the birth. Mark completely skips over the birth of Jesus. And a lot of people wonder why that is. Well, there's several reasons for that. Number one, in the ancient world in which Jesus lived, people did not focus on the birth of children. They did not focus on the birth of their great people. There are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, when a kid is born, you have no clue what's going to happen with the rest of their lives, do you? In the case of Jesus' birth, we had some prophetic ideas, right? That Jesus was going to be something special. But generally speaking, when a person is born, you have no idea what's going to happen. And so why bother to give them any attention until the end of their life when you know that there may be something worth noting? And in fact, in the first century world, people's day of death was often celebrated or remembered, but not their day of birth. I think there was also another very practical reason. In this time in the world's history, up to half of all children did not survive the first few years of life. And that statistic actually has generally held true until uh, the last uh, 150, 200 years. Infant mortality has gone down radically in the last several decades actually. And so when a kid is born, you just didn't give it a whole lot of attention because it might not be here in a few years. And of course, you wouldn't know what was going to go on. With that said, what Mark is most interested in is what happens in Jesus' adult life. And one of the stories about Jesus that of course all four of the Gospels explain in great detail is not about Jesus' birth, but about the passion, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. I highlight that for us again to remind you and me that more than the birth of Jesus, Christians focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus as the significant thing that happened in Jesus' life. And we'll get to that. We'll be talking about that quite a lot. With this, Mark begins the story about Jesus the beginning of the good news. Now, we can read that and say, yeah, this is good news about Jesus, but we need to understand that when Mark starts his story of Jesus that way, that he's saying something radical to first century people, and it should hit us radically in some sense. The good news, the evangelion, the evangel, if you will, the story of the good news about Jesus. Mark is writing this story about Jesus, not to give us biographical facts so much, not so much to tell us these are all the things that happen in Jesus' life, but Mark is telling us about Jesus with a very particular purpose in mind. Mark wants us to know who Jesus is and then also accept who Jesus is and then become part of the people who follow Jesus. Mark is trying to sell us something here, in a good way, of course. The good news of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll be talking about that term Christ. We, use the, we say Jesus Christ all the time as if that's Jesus' first and last name. Jesus' last name probably would have been Josephson. You've heard that before, haven't you? Jesus, the son of Joseph. There were no real last names in Jesus' day. Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, we'll be talking about that. But then Mark adds on another little phrase, the son of God. Now, let's step back from this just a second. Let's say I hand you a document of several pages long and say, I want you to read this about such and such person. This person is the son of God. Of God. How are you going to respond to me? You might say, Well, you're a Christian pastor, you're handing me a gospel, or if you don't know any of that, you might say, I'm crazy. Or you might say, Maybe I should pay attention to who this person is. That's what, that's what Mark is partly doing, is telling us we should pay attention to who this person is. Now, of course, Mark believes that Jesus is the Son of God and we'll be talking a lot about what that means. But let's go on through the story as Mark writes it. Now, one sentence that introduces this whole gospel with hugely important, hugely forceful and powerful affirmations. This is great news about what God is doing in the world. God has appeared in the world, and so we want to pay attention to it. And then immediately, Mark goes back to locate... All of this story about Jesus within the larger story of the Jewish people, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, right? Mark immediately refers back to the Old Testament. If you ever meet a Christian who says, I don't waste my time with the Old Testament, then you have met a Christian who doesn't understand the Scriptures, okay? That's pretty blunt, but that's pretty much the way it is. You cannot understand Jesus. You cannot understand Christianity unless you understand something about the Old Testament. And Mark is great evidence of that. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I don't know about you, but I can never read that phrase without thinking of Godspell. Wasn't it Godspell? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Does that tune ring a bell to you? right? Jesus was born a Jew. Jesus never stopped being a Jew. Jesus was born into the history of God's interaction with the whole world and God's interaction with the world specifically through the life of the Jewish people. John is telling us, excuse me, Mark is telling us that Jesus comes from out of this amazing history of the Jews. Now, let's put this into an historical context, okay? Sometime, let's say, 15, 16, 1700 years before Jesus showed up. It's really hard to date it exactly. But sometime, nearly 2,000 years before Jesus, God's voice came to Abraham, who was living in Iraq Ur of the Chaldees, and said to Abraham, I have a plan for you and for all people. And the whole story of the Old Testament began to unfold. About 750 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah popped up on the scene and prophesied to the nation of Israel as the northern part of the kingdom was being destroyed, the southern part eventually would be destroyed. But Isaiah had all these wonderful dreams and visions and messages from God about how God was going to restore everything. God was going to put everything back in the right place again is one way to look at it. And Isaiah used these words, prepare, get ready for the Lord, make His paths straight. He's going to come again. Mark remembers those words, as did the early Christian community that were all Jews, of course. Mark remembers those words as they began to process and think about what had happened in Jesus' life and how Jesus had appeared on the scene at the same time as John the baptizer. We always say John the Baptist, but friends, John was not a Southern Baptist. I'm just walking all over all kinds of people today. I know. I'm sorry. John the Baptizer is probably a better way to interpret the name that's given for John in the New Testament. Right now, we know from Luke, of course, all this backstory about Jesus and John, uh, Jesus and Mark. How? How? No, Jesus and John. See, I'm kidding. I I haven't woken up yet. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm still in that gray zone where you have to give me a lot of grace. I was doing this yesterday too, golly. So, we've been told in in Luke that Zechariah and Elizabeth, Elizabeth was a cousin to Mary, they were going to have a baby, and they ended up having John, who would become John the baptizer, right? We know all that stuff, but none of that stuff is important to Mark as he tells the story. As Mark tells the story, And in a way, what Mark does is give us a sense of how most people received the news about Jesus. Very few people knew all the stuff that Luke tells us about Jesus' birth. Very few people knew all the stuff that Matthew tells us about Jesus' birth. For the most part, what people knew is that this guy named John appeared on the scene in our calendar way of looking at things around the first few years of the first century, and the only reason we call it that is because we date everything to Jesus. I forget what the year was as far as the Jewish calendar went. At any rate, a couple thousand years ago, John appears on the scene, and there were lots of people like John, actually who were preaching to Israel that everything was messed up, that the whole nation needed to repent, to come back to its roots in the true worship of Yahweh, to be forgiven of sins, to go through this ritual of baptism as a way of dying to all the old stuff and being reborn, uh, being washed away from all of that, and, and essentially going through a great religious revival. There was a huge sense of religious revivalism going on in Palestine in the first century. Now, if you've ever studied uh, American history, you'll remember that in the 1750s, and again, I think it was in the 1840s, there were huge religious revivals going on in our country over a period of 10, 15 years. uh, There was some revivalism kind of stuff going on in the 1920s. A lot of it started in Los Angeles. Uh, A lot of people are hoping it will happen again in this country. At any rate, we're given to understand that most of the people in Israel, or at least a significant number, were, were having sort of a spiritual crisis. And people like John arrived on the scene and said, guys, we we got to get our act back together, right? The Romans are occupying us. We've lost the sense of what being Jew is all about. We're not in a good relationship with God. And so people are leaving Jerusalem in droves and making a long and difficult journey down the mountain, past Jericho, to go to somewhere along the Jordan River to listen to John's preaching, to repent, and to be baptized by John. So, there's this, this, um, there's this context, if you will. There's this overwhelming sort of social consciousness at the time that things are not right and things need to be put right with God, okay? So, John is preaching what you and I think of as a very Christian message, don't we? Repent, be baptized, be forgiven. We think of that in Christian terms. Well, that was happening before Jesus appeared on the scene. You see, there's another way in which our Christian understanding of Jesus has to be tied to classic Orthodox Jewish theology. The Jews have a very good sense of the idea that you need to repent of your sin, that God will forgive sin, that you need to turn your life around, right? Um, how that happens. It happens a little bit differently in Judaism. With Jesus, we have a different sense of that. But John is preaching that message, right? Now, John stands in the tradition of all the Old Testament prophets. In some way, we would say John is the last great prophet before the final prophet appears on the scene. And we'll be talking uh, in a few weeks about Jesus as the final prophet, as the greatest of all the prophets. But here John is out in the wilderness at the Jordan River. Let me say a note about the wilderness and the Jordan River. Most of Israel's, most of the Jews' significant religious experiences did not happen in cities, they happened in the wilderness. And a lot of them happened at the Jordan River, right? Israel Received the Ten Commandments. Israel received the teaching of God as it was wandering around in the wilderness. A lot of significant spiritual experience happens for people when they are in either a physical wilderness or a spiritual wilderness. Have you ever been in a spiritual wilderness? Kind of lost, right? Okay, so the people are coming out to the wilderness and they're coming to the Jordan River. The Jordan River played a huge role in the psyche of the Jewish people. It was the Jordan River that they crossed after they were finished wandering around in the wilderness to come into the Holy Land, into the land of Canaan, and to there become an established nation, the nation of Israel. Now John's back at the Jordan River. They're starting over again. You have that sense of it? It would be like, uh, the the best example I can think of for you is if America went through a great uh, national revival and we said, let's go back to our roots. And we all went to Philadelphia, (laughs) to Independence Hall, and read the Declaration of Independence again. It's kind of like that's what it would be. Does that make sense to you? Don't go too far with that. But, but that's kind of what it is. That John has taken the people back to their roots, to this significant place in a significant way as one of the old, old, Old Testament prophets. And think about that. Isaiah at this point is 750 years earlier. Most of us haven't even lived for 750 years in this room, right? Think of what, what was going on right here in this physical location 750 years ago. Was it covered with one? Oh, no, no, no. That's been millions and millions of years ago. Yeah. 750 years ago, what was happening right here? There were a handful of Indians, the Native Americans, living in the area. That was it. Right? The gringos from Europe hadn't even much thought about us yet. Right? The gringos and the Spaniards and all those other folks hadn't thought much about us yet. That's how long it had been since Isaiah had been around. And now John appears, and there were others like him. We have oblique references to others like him from other historians, primarily Josephus. Um, But I'm I'm trying to set the context for you that, that people were waiting, people were ready, people wanted to see something happen, and something was happening. It was spiritually significant for those Jews that they were going for repentance, for forgiveness, for baptism. John says, though, to the people, that all I'm doing is getting us ready for somebody else. Now, we have no clue how John knew that, really. Maybe Elizabeth and Zechariah, his mom and dad, had told him the stories that Luke eventually wrote down about his birth. All we know is that John had this overwhelming conviction from God that his job was to get people ready to hear Jesus and to welcome Jesus. Okay? And then Jesus shows up. This first mention we have in the gospel according to Mark about Jesus. Jesus. just shows up, okay? But He doesn't show up from out of nowhere. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus is located in time. Jesus is located in space. We know who He was and where He was from. That's an important thing to say. You and I don't think of it as a very big deal. But if I said to you, God has done something amazing in the world, and here is where it happened. It says to you that God has come into this world, into real time, real place, as real person. That doesn't sound revolutionary to us because we've been preaching it now for 2,000 years, but it was revolutionary then to say that God showed up right here. Jesus comes from Nazareth of Galilee and is baptized John. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? I'm going to rest my mouth for a minute. Why do you think Jesus needed to be baptized? Why did Jesus want to be baptized? Yeah, Jesus didn't need baptism. He didn't need to repent or be forgiven, but He was modeling that spiritual exercise of coming to God, right? Yeah, good answer. Why else? What do you think was going on? Yes. Okay. Burnt offerings. Yeah. When did that stop? Okay. So we we believe that the the sacrificial system of offering grain or animals or whatever uh, kind of came and went. It sort of ebbed and flowed in Jewish life. And now at Jesus' time, the temple had been rebuilt. Right. The temple had been rebuilt about 450 years earlier under Ezra and Nehemiah, and the Jews had reestablished the whole system of sacrifice and worship and the life of the temple. And so, yes, the sacrificial system is still going in Judaism at this time. We also believe that later on in the year 74, when the Romans finally just obliterated Jerusalem, that the, the worship life of the temple with all of that sacrifice essentially stopped at that point okay? And Judaism actually went through a major transformation then. A lot of the heart of Judaism had been this worship in the temple with the priests. You go to the temple, you worship, you sacrifice, then you go on about your daily life. Well, before that, Before that, during the exile, actually, the Jews had started spending more time in their worship, not sacrificing animals, but reading their Scriptures and talking about their Scriptures. And in Jesus' time, that was happening all throughout Palestine. Jesus grew up uh, going to the local synagogue. We know where the synagogue actually is uh, in Nazareth. If you go visit Nazareth or Capernaum, uh, there's lots of evidence of where the synagogues were. And so, after the temple was destroyed, the life of the Jews began to be more centered in the synagogue, not so much with priests but with rabbis, right, with teachers of the Scriptures. And we'll talk about Jesus as a rabbi in a few weeks from now. So, yeah, very good question, very good question. The Jews did practice. One of the reasons you're asking that question, I think, is, okay, how does this sacrifice stuff mix with repentance and forgiveness and baptism, right? The Jews practiced a form of baptism at different times. In fact, other religions practiced a form of baptism. Baptism itself, just as a ritual act of being washed with water, is not uniquely Christian. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran community, which is not far actually. It's just maybe 30 miles or so, maybe 40 miles down the Jordan River Valley from where Jesus probably and John did their thing as reported here in Mark. The Qumran community practiced a ritual washing probably every day. If you go to visit the community there, you can go see it. Just call your local tour guide I'm hoping to take a group sometime soon. But you can go to the Qumran community, and they have a big swimming pool there. (laughs) It doesn't have water in it anymore. But a lot of ancient people practiced ritual washing or cleansing as a spiritual exercise to say, I'm dirty. I need to be clean again. Or "I, I need to change my life. I need to be Buried in water and die to an old way and resurrected up out of it. Okay, that's probably a lot of what was going on in the baptism that John was accomplishing. Wash off the old, begin again. Right, This a pretty good message actually for the beginning of the year. Liturgically, uh, we're we're celebrating the baptism of Jesus this Sunday. Uh, that that's kind of a sidelight. Um, at any rate, that answers your question. I think yeah. So why was Jesus baptized? Why did Jesus come to be baptized? Yeah, exactly. More than just identifying with the people, or more than just assembling, it was saying, "I'm here with you to start something new. I'm part of this new thing that's going on." Absolutely. I think all of these things you can add into. It. Of course, we'll never really know. We have no record whatsoever of Jesus, you know, saying to Barbara Walters or Walter Cronkite at some point, "Well, this is why I was baptized." Right? Wouldn't you like to interview Jesus? Yes. Oh, I think that'd be fun. Yeah. Why else? Can you think? Of the, that's pretty. Yes. To fulfill the prophecy, yeah. Someone new is coming and starting a whole new thing. Now, we don't ever have, to my recollection, we don't, have a, we don't ever have a statement that says the, the new Messiah is going to be baptized, per se. Uh, but, but clearly, Jesus is doing something that, that identifies Him with the people, that identifies Him with the new thing that God is doing. Yeah, very much so. Over here. Here he is. Yes, yes. Now, yeah, you're moving. Let's move on then to say what happened at Jesus' baptism. At Jesus' baptism, God appeared in a very, very remarkable way. We don't know if anybody other than Jesus actually experienced what Mark says Jesus experienced. The way Mark tells it, it feels like Jesus is the only one who knew what was going on. The way Matthew and Luke report the story of Jesus' baptism, it could be that others heard the voice or saw the dove or whatever. We don't know. But at Jesus' baptism, we have a a proclamation from the very beginning of who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to be doing in the world. In a way, The story that Mark repeats here is is for Mark, it is the beginning of the story of Jesus. Just like Matthew and Luke tell us all this other stuff about Jesus' birth as a way of introducing the Savior to us, now this is Mark's way of saying, no, this is when it became clear that we had a Savior in our midst, right? And um, we have taken this experience then and, and imported it into all Christian baptism. We say the Spirit of God is present in the baptism of every new Christian right? Just as the Spirit of God was present with Jesus. There's a whole lot that goes there. But let's look at what actually happened. Jesus is baptized, and as He's coming up out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens ripped open. Let's stop right there. Let's let's dwell with those words for a few moments. Where else in the Bible or where else in the New Testament do you hear of something being ripped open? open. The curtain of the temple that separates the innermost holy of holies from everything else, as Jesus dies, that curtain is ripped open. This is kind of a, almost a violent act. It's, it's an unmistakable, dramatic kind of thing that goes on. That's the other thing that Mark reports when something is, is ripped open, right? When the holy of holies in the temple is ripped open, it's like there is no longer a dividing line between God and us. You can't put God in this special little place in the temple and say that's where He is. God is let loose in the world, so to speak, right? Now, think about this experience of the heavens being ripped open. Wouldn't you like to see what's going on in heaven right now? Wouldn't that be, be fascinating? It'd be a little... Overwhelming. I, I'd want to, like, can I go home and take a shower first or something, right? You want to sort of get ready for it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, an awful lot of, of, of the Bible's concern, an awful lot of religious concern, is about how it is that we seem to be so far separated from God and heaven and how can we get those things back together, right? Here, the dividing line between heaven and earth is erased. The heavens are ripped open. You can see directly into heaven, and heaven can see directly down here. There's a two-way thing going on there, right? Wouldn't you like to live every single moment of your life in in perfect connection with the almighty power and love and grace and majesty of the King of all things? Wouldn't that be amazing to have that at all times? That's kind of what's being said here too. So the, 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 the heavens are ripped open and Jesus sees or Jesus experiences the Spirit descending like a dove. What does that mean? Does the Holy Spirit look like a bird? Maybe. The Holy Spirit came down like a dove. Our Christian symbol... The classic Christian symbol for the Holy Spirit is a dove, okay? Now think about that, the Holy Spirit. Doves can fly. We don't think of flight anymore as anything all that special, but back then people couldn't fly. Something that can fly is up there in the heavens, right? Maybe, maybe the physical manifestation of God at that point was in the physical form of a bird or the appearance of a bird. There's another interesting idea though that says that that it wasn't a bird, so to speak, but it was a fluttering. There was something, uh, (laughs) I just now thought of this, I don't know if I agree with it or not, but it was something like a disruption in the space-time continuum was going on, right? A fluttering like a bird. I probably shouldn't use this example, but I'm fearless now because I'm old. Um, (laughs) Do any of you ever hunt birds? Anybody here hunt birds? You know, when when you're hunting for doves or quail or something like that, you don't initially see a bird, usually you hear the bird first, you hear a fluttering. What this is saying, we don't have to worry too much about exactly what the vision was like. What's important is that there is a connection between heaven and earth going on, and God is present in a very unmistakable way in a way that God usually is not present. We usually don't experience the overwhelming power and presence of God. But here, God has showed up. And then, of course, course the voice comes from heaven. This is my Son, the beloved with whom I'm well pleased. Okay? Now, let's step back from that just a moment and try to put ourselves into this context, okay? Let's say we're all sitting here And all of a sudden, the ceiling of this room is ripped open, and there's a great wind disturbance, let's call it that, a whirlwind. And we hear this incredible voice speaking from somewhere not here. And it says to Adrian, or to Tim, or to any one of us, This is my kid. I love him. I'm happy about it. Okay? How would you treat that person going forward? <laughs> Here, try some more donuts. I, I don't know. <laughs> right? I, I, to me, it's really helpful to try to, 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 to make this real for ourselves, right? Nobody knows. John is the only one Who has some sense of who Jesus is? Again, we have to go back to the stories of Luke. Jesus comes, and what does John say? John says, oh, you're the only one I should not baptize. You don't need it. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals before you get in the water. I've already said to people, I'm baptizing with water. This is a spiritual sort of symbolic kind of thing. But then someone is going to come along who's actually going to zap you with the Holy Spirit. And now, all of a sudden, that person is here. John is the only one who has any clue of what's going on. Nobody else has a clue. The way Matthew and Luke tell the story, other people are clued in. They see this event. They experience this event, and and, and now they're paying attention to Jesus. So who is Jesus? Let's talk about the Son of God. What do we mean when we say Jesus is the Son of God? You know a lot of stuff out there. Tell me what you know. Or what your questions are. When you say Jesus is the Son of God, he's the, only son. he's the only Son. Okay, okay, good point, good point. There's only one historic person who's ever lived that Christians say is the Son of God. Important point. Okay. What else? Let me, let me just clue you in. People have talked about this for 2,000 years now, and there's millions of pages written about it, and people still argue and discuss about it. So we're not going to get the whole thing out today, okay? So don't, don't, don't feel bad if you still have questions or, or say a lot of stuff, okay? We had a hand up over here. Did he exist for a specific purpose of coming to save us from our sins? Had that not been needed, would we know of him? Oh, very good question, Yes. We say that Jesus came for the specific purpose of saving us from sin, okay? And there's a lot to talk about there, too. And we will be talking about a lot of that as we talk about Jesus, right? Had we not needed to be saved from sin, Jesus wouldn't have shown up. That's an interesting question. I think you can argue that that would be the case, right? But clearly, we needed to be saved. And so, God showed up. Jesus showed up. Jesus was God. we got to go a lot of places with that. What else, do you, what else goes around in your mind as you're thinking? Thank you for that. As Jesus is the Son of God. He was, there in the he was there in the beginning. Okay. Wow, you've just opened a can of worms. So, some people look at this story and look at this event and the way the story is reported and say that Jesus was just like any other Jew. Jesus was just like any other young adult male who showed up to be baptized like all the others were, and God picked him out of all the folks that had shown up and said, I like you. I'm going to use you. This is called in classic uh, Christian theology the adoptionist theory, that Jesus was actually born of Joseph and Mary. There weren't any angels, there weren't any kings, there was no immaculate conception or virgin birth or any of that stuff, that Jesus was a great guy. And God said, ah, out of all of you folks, I'm going to do something with Jesus. And so when Jesus is baptized, I'm going to say, you, I choose to be my son, okay? There were a lot of Christians who believed that. The church argued about that for several hundred years. And then in the 300s, after Jesus was born, some creeds were written to try to describe what the church actually believed about Jesus, particularly the Nicene Creed. And in the Nicene Creed, the church essentially said Jesus was not adopted. He wasn't just a nice guy that God said, I'm going to pick you out of everyone else, but that Jesus was God from the very beginning, that Jesus was pre-existent; He was of the same substance as God. He was God in a different version, in a different form, in a particular manifestation, okay? We say all that because that's cl- a classic Christian theology now, but it was not a settled question in, in Jesus' own lifetime, right? Jesus is crucified, Jesus dies, people say He came back to life, but this understanding or, or theory about who Jesus actually was and where He came from took a while for the church to get its mind wrapped around. And there are a lot of people today who still treat Jesus as if He is just a really great guy that God used in a particular way, but not really God Himself. How many people do you meet who so, say, yeah, oh, I respect Jesus. Jesus taught a lot, a lot of great stuff. He took on the establishment. He loved people. He did, yeah, Jesus is a great guy. But then when you get to the point where you say, Jesus is God, they can't get over that hurdle. Okay? I'm not picking on them. I'm not upset with them. But let's understand the difference in saying that Jesus is God's Son, was God's Son from the very beginning. Okay? Now, that word son, let's talk about that for a minute. Okay? Uh, there are very few sons in this room as I'm looking out. <laughs> so we could just say child if you want to. Okay? Jesus was male. That's just the way it is. It's not so much about maleness, it's about Jesus is is the unique child of God, okay? I'm a son. We got a few other sons here. When you say someone is a son, you think back immediately to the Father, right? And when we say we have a son, we say the Father comes before the Son, right? That's one of the reasons people would say Jesus was not God from the very beginning, that God created Jesus, okay? That's a logical thing to assume, So, when we're saying that Jesus is the Son, we are not saying that Jesus followed God in time, okay? When we say that Jesus is the Son, we are saying that Jesus is just like the Father. Have you ever heard the phrase, like Father, like Son? Of course you have. Like Mother, like… How many of you? I don't know why I'm being so dangerous today. How many of you are your mother? at least a little bit? Yeah, some of you are saying, you're, you're smiling and you're nodding your head and others of you are saying, mm. <laughs> right? The child is very much the same as the parent. That is at least as important in, in thinking of Jesus when we think of Jesus as the Son as when we think of Jesus maybe coming after God, right? Or Jesus as the child of God. There's a whole lot of mystery in all of this that we'll never solve. But when we say Jesus is the Son of God, you've got to ask all of these questions, right? You've got to ask all of these questions. Yes. 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 for our little finite brains to try to understand? I, I don't know. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, you're totally confused, aren't you? Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. Welcome to Christian theology. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because we need to understand it and our brains are finite. And you yes. Know, you have God three in one. Yes. And so, for us to be able to understand it, you have this beloved son who is the father. Yes. Come down. Yes. Yeah, yeah. All of that all of that. You use the word Trinity, and we should use that word here as we talk about Jesus the Son. Christians say that God is one, and we experience God as three, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's one way. That's the classic way we we use that language all the time. We can never get away from that language. It, of course, is not a discussion of maleness, okay? It's a discussion of parent, child, and then, oh, wait, something else going on with Spirit. So, here's the way I think we have to resolve this. Number one is we have to get comfortable with the fact that we will never resolve in our own minds how it all works, that you can have three that are one and one that are three, and God as Father, God as Son, God as Spirit, God as Creator, God as Redeemer, God as Sustainer. There's millions of ways to discuss God, and this takes us into something that's probably good for us to review here at the beginning of the third decade of the 2000s. as we talk about Christian theology, okay, or theology of any kind, you and I need to get comfortable with the fact that every single word we can possibly say about God will never be enough. Does that make sense? We can never finally and totally completely describe everything so that it's all tied up in a neat little package and we're done. We just have to get used to that fact. We are describing a mystery. We are are trying to explain something that's beyond us. With that said, we also must never think that we can know nothing about God. Some people will say, God's a mystery, none of this stuff makes any sense, therefore we don't know God. That's agnosticism. We're not agnostics. We say we do know something about God. What Christians say is that in the existence of the person of Jesus... In the words, the life, the teaching, the miracles, and preeminently in the death and resurrection, those two should always be put together, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we know God most completely. We also experience God, of course, as spirit, right? Jesus is not physically here right now, but Jesus is here as spirit, as God is here as Spirit. When we say God is Father, that Father language takes us more back to the Creator image, right? Christian theology wants to say that Jesus was there creating everything with God, and of course God was doing that in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of God moved across the face of the waters. I can can keep talking for 8 or 12 hours if you want and, and, and keep saying all those things, and we'll never finally totally get it. But don't mistake this fact that the early church and the church ever since has said in Jesus God was doing something in a special, unique way. He had never done it that way before. He has never done it since because he doesn't need to do it again. He did need to do it, so he came and did it in the person of Jesus. That's why we're so big on Jesus. It's one thing to talk about God the Creator. How do we know anything about God the Creator? We can look at creation and say, "Wow, it's incredible! Must have been an..." amazingly intelligent, powerful something or other that did this, but that's about as far as we can go. We can talk about the Spirit, but when we start talking about Jesus, we're talking about God in concrete, specific, human, approachable terms. When I say there is a person who lived in the first century, this is what He said, this is what He did then we can finally know in a way that we understand what God is about. That's taking us into Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. That's why the Father-Son language is important. There are some people who want to get away from that today, uh, people who uh, are—and I understand what they're saying, and they have a point that we should be careful when we're talking about God in human terms or God in male terms. Of course, But we can never get away from talking about God in anthropomorphic terms because that's how God chose to come to us so that we could understand God the most completely. You could, theologically, I think, be just as theologically justified in talking about mother-daughter as father-son from that perspective, right? But the classic way is father-son. You got me going on a whole bunch of stuff there, did I? Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up, yeah. Isn't this fascinating stuff? We'll never finish this conversation. (laughs) Jesus, the Son of God. I love him. Think back to the story as Mark is writing it. Right? Some of you. How many of you are English majors in this room? We got some English majors. Yeah, I have an English minor. I think. Um, I got two or three minors. Let's not go there. At any rate, if you're an English major, if you're taking this story apart as a piece of literature, okay, looking just at the literature. Try to get away from all the other theological stuff we have going on. But as a piece of literature, you're handed this story, and you're reading it for the first time, right? And what you've read is that you're going to read a story about good news about this guy named Jesus who is the Messiah. And all the people reading the story already know about the Messiah. They're Jews, right? They already know about the idea of the Son of God. The Jews, for most of their history, had used that terminology, Son of God, to talk about their kings. You want to have a great, big, powerful, wonderful king? This is the Son of God. He's a great guy. That didn't mean that the king was divine, actually. But oftentimes, as in the world of politics, we begin to use divine titles for our most important leaders, Right? Okay? In the Gentile world, if you wanted to honor somebody, if you had a great hero, you would say, oh, they're a child of God, they're a son of God, you know, a great general, a great emperor, whatever. Now, Mark is saying in this story that we're starting to read, this is not just a son of God, he's the son of God. The small words in the Bible are really important. There's a big difference between a and the isn't there, okay? The son of God. And He's shown up as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in all of the old ways and all of the old places that we think are so super important. And now God has said, this is who is here among you. Mark has gotten our attention. We're going to pay attention to everything else that Mark is going to tell us about Jesus. And if we end up believing that Jesus is who Mark said He was and who God said He was, then we're not just going to believe that Jesus is important. We're going to change our lives. That's ultimately Mark's purpose. Like I said, he's a salesman. Everybody in the religion business is in sales. That's what I tell people, by the way, when you sit down on an airplane and you don't want to talk to them and they ask me what I do, I tell them I sell insurance and they don't want to talk to me anymore because that's what I do. Isn't it the truth? You want to shut people down? Yeah, I sell insurance. Yeah. Anyhow, what else in Son of God? Let's start to wrap this up here. Good question. So the question is, if someone did hear this and see this other than Jesus and, and or John, John kind of knows what's going on, what would their response be, right? If you see this big honking mysterious bird coming down in a voice, this is my son, what are you going to do with that information? Um, we have zero report, We have nothing that tells us what the general population that were standing around Jesus at the Jordan River, what they did with it, if they saw it, okay? Which is one reason some people believe that Mark's report is actually accurate. There's no report of anything else happening from there, right? If this ceiling ripped open and the Spirit came down and said, this is my son, I mean, wouldn't some of you call the, you know, the Union Tribune or or somebody, right? Okay. (laughs) Or you might shut up and say, what in the world just happened? Here's what we know is that the story as the four Gospels tell it is that people have these incredible experiences along the way with Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000 or the healings that went on or or even just this overwhelming sense that Jesus was really special just because of the way He taught people. That was important to folks. Um, And yet still nobody really had a clue about it until those first few disciples who were with Jesus, you know, day in and day out, even when Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? We have that that famous story of Peter coming back. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's another place where Jesus is called the Son of God, right? Uh, It took a long time for the people to begin to accept this idea of who Jesus was. And as the story is told, the final, the, the thing that sealed the deal was the resurrection, Uh, that it was not until after the resurrection that people finally said, wow, all this incredible stuff finally makes sense. If you actually saw Jesus, heard Jesus, believed that you were experiencing the risen Lord Jesus Christ after His death, if you had been there and watched Him tortured and executed and put in the tomb and then He's back, then you'd finally say, wow, okay, but now what do we do with it? right? So, there's a sense, especially in Mark, as Mark tells the story, uh, that Jesus doesn't want people to know who He is just quite yet, that He's got a lot of work to do. Uh, Jesus goes through this big struggle. That's the next story that Mark tells us about. If everybody all of a sudden says, oh, this is God's Son, right? Let's get an army together. Let's throw out the Romans. Let's, you know, be on the way. Jesus had work to do that was going to take things in a very different direction than the people would have automatically presumed. And Jesus actually wanted to keep it a secret. And, and most of the people, even the disciples, they had some clue, some idea, some, some understanding, but it took a while to get used to. That's the story as it's told later on. In this text, just these first 11 verses, we have no report of any response whatsoever. Because, think about that from the literary perspective again, Mark is going to build a huge case for us, and this is only the beginning of the story, Right? let's say the ceiling opens up and the dove comes down and this big voice happens. Well, it's what happens after that that's important, isn't it? So that's what Mark is going to talk about. Cool. Okay, we better stop. We still have the rest of the year to think about this, don't we? Isn't that fascinating? Good. There's some questions that I've written down here that I hope will help take you into this conversation and Mark in lots of different ways to think about what you're going to do differently, how you're going to believe differently, how you're going to act differently because of all this, and that's important for us today, okay? Let's pray. God, thank You so much, as we always thank You, for giving us something to chew on, giving us something to think about, giving us something that that we believe and hope is going to transform our lives just a little bit more today so that we can walk in Your ways and follow the One who is Your Son. Thank You for all that in Jesus. Amen. The Lord willing, we'll see each other next week.